Well, hey, listen, we are, we are very blessed today. A uh, bit of a surprise for you guys and a certain huge blessing for me. We have Pastor David Guzik here um, to teach today. Um, pastor Guzik has been uh, a pastor for 35 years. Um, he planted two churches. He was the director at the Calvary Chapel Bible College in Siegen, Germany for about seven years. Um, he uh, was the senior pastor at Calvary Chapel. Come on out, brother. Welcome, Pastor David. Senior pastor at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. He's now their teaching pastor, but his most notable accomplishment in the ministry that he's passionate about is the ministry that has blessed us as a congregation the most, and, and that's his ministry, Enduring Word. And what it is, is he has authored commentaries of every book of the Bible. And so every teaching that I do, I mean, like every week, is informed by him. Actually, as I read it, you just rip off every message that I give. So um, anyway, uh, hey, you can access his teaching materials, his commentaries, and I highly recommend them. Uh, EnduringWord.com is his ministry. Um, BlueLetterBible.org, his teaching is all there as well. Um, He's been married for over 30 years to his wife, Inga Lil, who uh, Brenda loves. Um, They have three adult children and he is going to teach the word to us today. So, thank you Pastor so much, David, too. thank you thank so much. You. God bless you. Well, good morning, everybody. It's such a pleasure for me to be here at Reliance Church. Um, I've been so blessed by your hospitality, by being able to spend some time, by seeing your building project yesterday. Man, what a great thing. And it just really makes me happy to be here with you. If I, if I could give anything in return to you, it would just be to give you something from God's word. So... I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to a place. Turn to the book of Haggai, chapter 2. Yes, it's really in the Bible. (laughs) Haggai, chapter 2. I'm going to give you a little bit of time and ask you for a prayer request while you're finding your way to Haggai, chapter 2. There's no shame in using the table of contents. And if you got one of the Bibles that they hand out, it's on page 650. So you can go right there. Haggai, it's one of the short books of the Bible called uh, one of the minor prophets, and uh, I I love how these minor prophets speak so powerfully to us many centuries later. In any regard, here's a prayer request. Uh, As Pastor Ted so graciously mentioned, I do have an online commentary on the entire Bible. I couldn't say that until September of last year when I finally finished the last book that I was working on. That was the book of Proverbs. But uh, it's a continual work. I mean, it's like painting the Golden Gate Bridge. I go back now and there's so many corrections and improvements and editing work to do. So it's really a never-ending work. But it really is kind of my life's work. And I'm grateful if anybody finds that commentary helpful. Again, it's at EnduringWord.com. But here's the prayer request. In the English language, it's fairly easy to find good Bible resources that are free. You just do some Google searches and you can find things. In other languages, it's much more difficult. And so I've had it on my heart for a long time to have my Bible commentary material translated into other languages. Praise the Lord that it's all translated into Spanish already, and it's up on my website. So if you know Spanish-speaking believers who need good Bible resources, send them to EnduringWord.com. But there's other very significant languages that need Bible commentary work. And we have some of those up on our website already. Um, We have probably seven or eight different languages. We've got translation projects in development right now. 
But the two that are kind of most important to me at this time is the work we're doing in Arabic and the work we're doing in Mandarin, the most commonly written Chinese language. Brothers, sisters, these language groups, they need good Bible resources. Arabic-speaking pastors and believers, they need this kind of help. And so I'm happy to say that already on EnduringWord.com, we have my whole commentary on Luke translated into Arabic, my whole commentary on Acts translated into Arabic. We've got a translator working right now on the Gospel of John. And then in Mandarin, we've got the Book of Romans, the Book of Galatians, and we're working on more. But if you just remember to make mention in prayer for that work, because it's a big work. It's going to take many years. It's going to take a lot of resources. But just whenever I can, wherever I go, I ask people, make mention in prayer for it. And, uh, and I know that God answers the prayers of his people. We also got a book table that's out on your way out. I'm not really good at the book table thing. So everything's there just for donation only. So that's, I'm not a very good businessman, but I can write some Bible commentary. All right, Haggai chapter 2. Have you found your way there yet? I'm going to read the first three verses, and then I'm going to spend a little bit of time setting the context, okay? So this is Haggai the prophet speaking uh, something like 2,500 years ago. Ready? Haggai chapter 2, verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying... Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? The year was October of 520 B.C. when God gave this word to Haggai the prophet to speak to the people of Jerusalem who were involved in a project of rebuilding the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. Now, I suppose there was a time when a pastor would stand in front of a church and maybe he could assume that most of the people had an understanding of the Bible story up to that point. But you know what? We don't live in that age anymore. Many of you are fairly young in the faith, and you didn't have the same upbringing in Sunday school and Bible teaching churches before that. And some of you, you come to the Bible, and it's still a pretty new book to you. Let me tell you something. If that's you this morning, I am so glad you're here. And you are always welcome at Reliance Church. You really are. We don't want to be just a society of people who are already a bunch of Bible experts and speak in this inside coded language, but we want to bring the timeless message of the Bible to people from everyday backgrounds today can understand it and grasp it and apply it to their lives. So let me tell you how it got to this place in the book of Haggai. Centuries before this, God called a very special man named Abraham and made a covenant with him. And as part of that covenant, God said, I'm going to choose you and make a nation out of you. And I'm going to use that nation to bless every family on earth through the Messiah that would come through that nation. So God raised up this man, Abraham. And made a covenant with them. The covenant passed on to Abraham's son Isaac. And then Isaac's son Jacob. And then Jacob had 12 sons and one daughter. Those 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. 
The 12 tribes of Israel went into the land of Egypt during a time of famine, and they went into Egypt as a large family. But over 400 years in Egypt, most of those years were bitter and cruel slavery. God did something remarkable with that large family. He made them a nation. So where they came into Egypt, being a little more than 100 people, they came out of Egypt 400 years later, being a group of people anywhere from 1 million to 6 million in size. And God brought them out of Egypt because it was never their long-term destiny to be slaves. God intended them to be free men and free women following after God in the covenant that he gave to their forefathers. So he brought them into the land of Canaan, which for the most part we call modern-day Israel. And they brought them into that land, and he established them in that nature, nation, I should say. And for several hundred years, they existed in the land of Canaan, without any organized, centralized government, just as 12 tribes with their own sort of confederacy of a nation. But then came the moment when God allowed them to have a king, and the first king over the 12 tribes of Israel was a man named Saul. Saul wasn't much of a good king. He was a bad king. But then God brought along another king, the kind of king he wanted, a man after his own heart, and his name was David, the son of Jesse. And David was, in many ways, Israel's greatest king, and he had a wonderful reign over the 12 tribes of Israel. Then David had a son. His son's name was Solomon, and Solomon also reigned over the 12 tribes of Israel. Solomon did something very special in his day. He built a temple unto the Lord God. And that temple became the center of Israel's national and spiritual life. When you had a sacrifice to make unto the Lord, a sacrifice for sin, a sacrifice for dedication, a sacrifice for thanksgiving, you brought it to the temple and the priest there would make the sacrifice. When you had special prayers to offer, you'd bring it to the temple and the priest would offer special prayers. When the nation needed atonement, it happened at the temple. It all happened at the temple and the temple that Solomon built was an amazing structure uh, made of marble and gold and bronze and all this beautiful beautiful, ornate structure because Solomon was incredibly rich and he was able to put unbelievable resources into the building of the temple. Well, the temple stood as the center of the nation's national life. Then they had a civil war. The 10 northern tribes became their own kingdom. The two southern tribes became their own kingdom. Eventually, because of their great wickedness, the 10 northern tribes were overwhelmed and conquered by the Assyrians. And then about 135 years later, the southern two tribes, including the city of Jerusalem where the temple stood, they were conquered by the Babylonians. And when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem, they absolutely destroyed the temple. They broke it down. They burned it. It was nothing but a rubble and a ruins when the Babylonians left it. And the Babylonians depopulated the land of Judah until 50 years later or so, approximately 50, when God opened up the doors and allowed the people of Israel to come back into their land. When they came back into the land, what's one of the first things they said? We got to build a temple again. And so under the leadership of a man, named, um, uh, a man named Zerubbabel, under the leadership of a man named Joshua, under the leadership of a man named Ezra, they rebuilt this temple that had once stood in Solomon's day. There was just one problem. 
compared to Solomon's temple, this one was terrible. They didn't have the money. They didn't have the manpower. They didn't have the freedom. They didn't have the security. This was a temple built under very difficult times. And if you looked at it, if you measured the gold that was in Solomon's temple against the gold that was in Haggai's temple, hardly any gold in Haggai's temple. Lots of gold in Solomon's. You measure the marble in Solomon's versus the marble in Haggai's. Not much marble in Haggai's temple. In many ways, it was an inferior temple and they felt, what's the use? If my work for God can't be as great as somebody else's or as great as what God has done in the past, then what's the use of doing it at all? And that's why God spoke to Israel in these times. Notice these words in verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? That's in verse 3 of Haggai chapter 2. And brothers and sisters, this is what I want you to understand is there were people standing there looking at Haggai's temple who were still alive when Solomon's temple has existed and they saw both of them with their own eyes. And when they saw both of them, it was easy for them to look at Haggai's temple and say, this is garbage. You want a temple? Solomon built a temple. I don't know what this is, but it's not much in God's eyes. That's why God says, look at verse 3. In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Friends, this reminds me of a principle that I think we need to remember from time to time in the Christian world, especially in Christian service. It's the danger of comparison. You know, sometimes we compare what we're doing with the Lord against what somebody else is doing with the Lord for the Lord, I should say, or or we compare what our church is doing compared to what somebody else's church is doing. And I tell you, there could be great danger in that. Here's the danger. If by outward appearance, I feel that I'm doing more for the Lord than you, then what's the temptation? What do I get? Proud. My nose gets up in the air. Thank you, Lord, for using such an exalted servant. You know, on and on, the whole just nonsense goes in your head. That's dangerous, isn't it? But then there's also another danger. The danger is I look and compare myself with somebody else's ministry, and in comparison with them, it feels like I'm doing nothing with God. I go, oh, look how you're using them, Lord. It feels like I'm doing nothing for it. And what does that make me want to do? It makes me want to give up and despair. No, listen. There's a place for us to say, Lord, you do whatever you're going to do with my brothers and sisters over there. I want to serve you the best I can. And that was part of the trap they were falling into in the days of Haggai. They, They looked at their work and it felt so inconsequential. They felt like, what's the point of trying at all? This comparison was crippling them. And so God needed to speak to them to carry on the work. Look at verses 4 and 5 of Haggai chapter 2. You're going to see God's exhortation to them. It's wonderful, and it speaks to us today. It says now, Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. And be strong, Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord. And work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit reigns among, remains among you. Do not fear. 
Do you see God's encouragement to these discouraged people right here in Haggai's day? The first thing he says, and if you noticed, he said it three times. He said it to Zerubbabel, he said it to Joshua, and then he said it to the people. Be strong, be strong, be strong. That was God's word to them. Be strong, but that wasn't the only thing. And then he says, and work. And then the finally thing he encouraged them with is at the end of verse five, he says, do not fear. Listen, that's a tremendous motto for each and every one of us in our walk with God. Be strong, work, and do not fear. Be strong, work, and do not fear. I don't know a single person who doesn't need to hear that kind of encouragement. But this is what I want you to see. There was a reason for the encouragement. If you look at verse 4, and then he kind of repeats the idea in verse 5, God gives a reason. Here's a reason to be strong, a reason to work, a reason to not be fair. I want you to know, God isn't into the just the, I don't know, kind of the mindless rah, rah, rah. Be strong. Why? I don't know. Just be strong. God's not into that. God gives us reasons. And do you see the reason there in verse 4? Be strong. Why? Because I am with you. When you understand that God is with you in the work, then you can be strong, you can get to work, and you can put away fear. I am with you, it says. And then at the end of verse 5, he says, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, it's in fulfillment of my word that I'll be with you. When we remember that God is with us in the work, it makes all the difference. As a matter of fact, it also unlocks a key for our understanding as to why God wants us to serve him. Now look, um, it may not surprise you because I am a pastor. I've been in Christian service for many years. So it may not surprise you what I'm going to say, but I believe it. I believe that Every follower of Jesus Christ, every Christian, should have a deliberate way that they serve God. Everybody should. I don't think it's just for people up on the platform. I don't think it's just for some special class of believers. But I believe that every believer should have some deliberate way to serve God. Now, why do I say that? I don't say that primarily because there's work that needs to be done. And sometimes you get that impression. Because we in the church, we're always letting you know about needs, and we should let you know about needs. Hey, for the VBS, we need some workers. Hey, for this project, we need some workers. And, this, and that's good, and we should do that. But sometimes people get the mistaken idea that God just has us as worker drones for his kingdom. Why does God want us to serve him? Because the work needs to get done, and you're the one to do it, so go out and do it. Now look, that's not the primary reason. It's true that there's work to be done in God's kingdom and he wants us to feel responsible for it. But let me tell you what the real secret is. The real secret of why we serve is relationship. We come to know God in ways through our service that we would not know him any other way. We know this especially as men. Now, I'm not saying this has no application to the women, but just in my observation, it's especially true among men. We as men, we have a way that we get to know other men. Women, they get to know each other by going out to coffee and talking for four or five hours. 
Men, probably the best way for us to get to know each other is to work together. We just find something, we work together on it. And as you're working, you're talking. As you're working, you're learning. As you're working, you're just getting to know the other man. And there's a principle there that applies for our relationship with God. There are avenues of your relationship with God that you will never know in any kind of depth until you start serving him in some way. And God will be with you in the work and that partnership with him, that companionship with him, that fellowship with him, you will see that you get to know God in a way that you never knew him before. That's why he encourages him. Be strong, work, put away fear and do it because he says in verse five, because my spirit remains among you. Okay, all that to come to verses six, seven, eight, and nine. And I wanna spend the rest of my time developing the thoughts in these four verses, okay? After telling them, don't be discouraged because of the comparison. After telling them, get back to work and get busy. Now comes more encouragement starting at verse 6. Ready for this? For thus says the Lord of hosts. Once more, it is a little while. I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land. And I will shake all nations and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Have the scene in your mind. You're looking at Haggai's temple. And in your mind, you remember Solomon's temple. You're doing the comparison thing, right? Solomon's temple, amazing. Haggai's temple, eh, not so much. What's God's word to you? The first thing God says is, I'm going to shake everything and do a new thing. By the way, Verse 6 is the only verse from the prophet Haggai that's ever quoted in the New Testament. It's quoted in Hebrews chapter 12. And the context is amazing because in Hebrews chapter 12, when he quotes this idea that God will shake heaven and earth, earth and sea once again, what God says is he says, therefore, we must cling to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And I don't know about you, But when I look at the world today, I see a whole lot of shaking going on. Don't you? The nations, the culture, individuals, lives. You see it on a personal level. You see it on a national level. You can see it on a community level. People are being shaken everywhere. But let me tell you, it gives us all the more reason, first of all, to realize God is doing something and Jesus Christ can return at any time. But it also gives the encouragement to say, I want to cling to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. A kingdom that can never perish. And that's the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing he does. He gives him some eternal perspective. But now look at what he builds on, beginning at verse 7. He says, And they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory. 
they shall come to the desire of all nations. Now, I don't know what Bible translation you have in front of you. I'm reading from the New King James Bible translation. And in my Bible translation, the translators capitalized the D in desire, and they capitalized the N in nations, desire of nations, and they wrote it as if it was a title for a person. Do you know why they wrote it as if it was a title for a person? Because it is a title for a person. And which person does that phrase, the desire of all nations, refer to? Now, here's a little hint. When somebody asks you who is something in church and you really don't know who it is. I mean, if it's obvious, say who it is. But if you really don't know who it is, what answer are you pretty much always safe with? Jesus. The desire of all nations is a wonderful and often overlooked title for Jesus Christ. Do you know that Jesus is such a majestic, amazing person that you can't comprehend him with one title? You can say he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we love that title for Jesus, don't we? It makes us think of his sacrifice for us. Okay, great. But then he's also the Lion of the tribe of Judah. You can't comprehend him with just one title. Lamb isn't enough. Lion isn't enough. You can say that he's the alpha, the first, the beginning of all things, but that's not enough. He's also the omega, the last, the finisher of all things. You can go on and say he's the door, he's the vine, he's the bread of life, on and on. Jesus Christ is so great that he cannot be comprehended by just one or even a few titles. And one of the many titles that the scriptures give to our Savior is this wonderful title. He's the desire of all nations. Jesus Christ is the desire of everyone in this world. I'm telling you, That if the world could articulate it, if the world could explain it, they would say, I want Jesus. Now, I know what I just told you with those words is counterintuitive. Because we look at the world today, and I'll be honest with you, when I see the world today, I see that most of the world, it would be impossible for them to care less about Jesus Christ than they already care. Jesus is ignored, Jesus is insulted. Jesus is mocked. Sometimes Jesus is even blasphemed. That is what it seems like the world does to Jesus. And it's true, they do all those things. But you know what? So much of that is covering over something that's reflective of who they really desire as the desire of all nations. You think of what people really want in life. What do people want? They want love, they want security. They want peace. They want a sense of prestige. They want meaning. Isn't this what the nations want? Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. Those things are found in Jesus Christ. It's just the world does not know it. They don't know it. They don't know it. That person who's longing for love and has bounced around from one ruined relationship to another and they leave a wreckage of pain and hurt, and bitterness from every broken relationship. But they still just kind of keep trying, but it's a disaster every time. You know some of those people, don't don't raise your hand if you're one of those people. But you know those people, don't you? 
Listen, what are they looking for? They're looking for love. And Jesus Christ is the desire of all nations. He can fill their life with that kind of love. They're looking for Jesus, but they don't know it. Think of that person who is so troubled, so messed up, so reaching out, so desperate for anything that they'll pump drugs into their body to the point that they're addicted. And they're just bound in this. What are they really looking for? They're looking for the peace and security that somebody can find in Jesus Christ. Their desire is after Jesus. They just don't know it. Looking for the person who, when a new smartphone comes out, man, they got to get it first. And man, they're first in line, whatever the latest technology is. And listen, when you get real honest about it, you know, the technology that they get, it's really not that different from what they just had. I mean, is it really just this quantum leap forward? No. But what do they really want with that smartphone in their hand? That latest and greatest smartphone. Many of the people going after that, what they're really looking for is prestige. They want to whip out that smartphone. People say, ooh, you got that one. And it gives them a sense of status and prestige. Listen, there is no greater prestige we can have in the universe than knowing that we are adopted sons and daughters of Jesus Christ and we have a place in his eternal plan of the ages. That's prestige. So do you see that on every level, both in the individual and the national, what the nations long for is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the desire, and he's the desire of all nations. In other words, for the whole world. This is why God wants us to have a missionary mindset, to not only be concerned with what God's doing in the Temecula Valley. Now, we thank the Lord for what he's doing in the Temecula Valley. It's wonderful. But we see, no, God, your plan is not only to do a wonderful thing here, but to do it in every nation around the world. Lord, use us to reach the nations. Jesus Christ is the desire of, I love how it says, of all nations, not just America, not just Canada, not just the European nations, but of all nations. That's God's desire to do that work and to reach out to all nations. And we have a message that we are not afraid to proclaim. It's found in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 42, where it says of Jesus, he is the savior of the world. We believe that, don't we? That Jesus isn't just the savior of America. He isn't just the savior of a few other Western type nations. No, Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. And that's a message that we are willing to to even um, put ourselves out for and even suffer for if it was necessary. There was one time uh, many years ago, I was visiting Vienna and I had the opportunity to just go around and hang out. I was going to preach in a church on a Sunday. So I was there on a Saturday and I found myself with a protest march against Israel going down the street, I found myself standing on a street corner proclaiming to the crowd. I I didn't want to be the angry shouter, so I put a smile on my face and I tried to speak loud without screaming because I didn't want to be that screamer. But I just wanted to say this to the crowd. Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. I, I said that again and again to a a whole parade of protesters against Israel. Now, you imagine, I got some weird looks from the people going on there. 
happy to say I was never in any physical danger. There was no police. It wasn't a weird situation. But let me tell you, I had to think, if there was a situation for which I was willing to be physically assaulted over, I'm willing to be physically assaulted over that message. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. I'm willing, and listen, I'm not trying to exaggerate the danger. I was in no danger of this happening. But if it were to happen, I would be willing to go to jail for that statement, Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. You want to put me in jail for proclaiming that? Then go ahead and put me there. Because he is the desire of all nations. He is the Savior of the world. Now notice next what it gets to in these verses. After dealing with that wonderful statement that Jesus is the desire of all nations, then God encourages them to give. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I I can't pass it by. In verse 8, God encourages them with Haggai, and he tells them, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. They were discouraged at the lack of resources they had to put to God's work. They wish, oh man, if we had the resources, we'd really build something amazing like Solomon did. But then, and God says, listen, don't be discouraged by a lack of resources. Why? Because the gold is mine and the silver is mine, God says. Brothers and sisters, we always need to remember that God has immeasurable resources at his disposal and it honors him when we believe him with that and we trust him that way. And therefore, we're generous with what we have. You know, the best illustration I ever heard of that was a story about a guy named Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a man from the 19th century who was an absolutely groundbreaking pioneer missionary to the inland parts of China. He started this amazing organization called the China Inland Mission and did an unbelievable work of God. And he did it entirely by faith, just by what people would donate. Well, when God was stirring up Hudson Taylor's heart to move from London to China and begin his work, Hudson Taylor began to believe, listen, I'm going to have to live by faith in China. Why don't I start living by faith right now in London? And so everything he could, he endeavored to say, I'm going to live by faith. Now, he was a doctor's apprentice training up in the medical profession. And so he would go around and visit some people in some of the worst slums of of, uh, London. And one time he visited this room and he described, he said, you couldn't believe how wretched this family was. They were in such deep poverty. There was sickness in the home. That's why he was called to the home because of the sickness. And he saw their poverty, he saw their need, and his heart was absolutely broken. So what did he do? He prayed with the family. And he led them in what we call the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father. Our Father who is in heaven, holy be, and he led him in that prayer. And he's thinking, what else can I do for this family? He speaks to him about the Lord. He speaks to him about a loving Father that they have in heaven. And then before he goes, he hears God speak to him saying, Give them the money that you have. And there's a problem. Because Hudson Taylor had some money with him. But here's the problem. It was all the money he had in the world. That's it. It was in his pocket. The second thing was it was all in one note. Now, I'm going to convert it to like American terms today. But let's just say all he had in his pocket was a $100 bill. That's it. And it was all the money he had in the world. And God says, give it to them. He's like, Lord, that's all my money. 
God, if I had change in my pocket, if I had two fifties, I'd gladly give them one. But God, all I got is a hundred in my pocket. And he said, God spoke to his heart and he said, you are mocking me when you pray to me as a loving father and you don't believe that I'll take care of your needs. Well, he was under so much conviction that he just gave them the $100 bill or the equivalent. He gave them the money in its entirety and he said, God beautifully provided his every need from that point on. Why? Because he believed that God was a great provider, that the gold belonged to God, the silver belonged to God, and he didn't have to worry about being generous. Now, to the last point I want to make, again here, it's in verse 9. Check this out. Finally, he says, the glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former. Do you understand what he's saying there? Do you remember the two temples we're considering? The temple of Haggai is right in front of us, and we see it. Look, it's nice, but it's nothing spectacular. It's just very simple, very workmanlike. But in our memory, we see the temple of Solomon, and it had gold and fantastic marble, and it was ornate, and it was beautiful, and it was powerful. It projected everything you wanted. Solomon's temple, glorious. Haggai's temple, not so much. And what does God say? God says, I'll just read it to you because I want it to be said exactly. He says, Right there in verse 9, he says, The glory of this latter temple, Haggai's temple, shall be greater than the former. And look, sometimes we read the Bible, and it's just kind of blah, blah, blah to us. We don't really think about it. If you think about it, this is a crazy statement. What are you talking about? Do you never see Solomon's temple? Do you never see what an amazing, impressive, beautiful, ornate structure it was? How can you say that Haggai's temple is going to have more glory than Solomon's temple? Well, let me give you two ways that Haggai's temple was more glorious. This is an absolutely true statement that, that God said, of course. But how was it true? Two ways. Number one, it was more glorious because of what it would become. Because centuries after Haggai's time, there would come a man named Herod the Great, who was a strange guy for God to raise up to do this work. But Herod the Great took Haggai's temple and did the most spectacular remodeling and renovation project and made it something bigger and greater and grander than even Solomon's temple. So it was worked out to be exactly true in a literal sense. But there's an even greater sense in which this is true. You and I would agree that Solomon's temple was amazing. It was glorious. But you know what was even more glorious about Haggai's temple, what we call the second temple? Was it was the temple that Jesus the Messiah, the desire of all nations, the one that he came and personally visited. Can you imagine that? As great as Solomon's temple was, Jesus never visited Solomon's temple. Not in his person. But Jesus himself came to Haggai's temple. So all those places when you read in the Gospels, in Luke, in Matthew, Mark, and John, all those places you read in the Gospel that Jesus is at the temple. He does this at the temple. Is that the, that's all Haggai's temple. In other words, the, G, the presence of Jesus brought to anything brings the glory of God. 
Now, let me give you a final exhortation on that very principle for two things. First of all, for you as a church, man, I've seen your building project. I was there visiting yesterday. It's awesome. You guys are going to love that building. What a blessing for your congregation. But let me give you this encouragement. If you don't worship Jesus there, if you don't preach Jesus in and through his word, if you don't exalt Jesus and recognize him being right there in the midst with his people, right there in the midst, then it has no glory. It's just a cool building. I'm telling you, God wants that building that you guys move into in five or six weeks. He wants that building to be a glorious place. And what makes it more glorious than anything is the presence of Jesus. Worship Jesus there. Proclaim Jesus there in his word. Minister Jesus one to another. Let that place be the home of Jesus in this community and it'll be filled with glory. But then there's a second point for me to make with this. And it has to do with your life. Sometimes we use the analogy in the Christian life of our Christian life being like a house. And in that house, the house belongs to Jesus. It's his. But we sort of have a system of keys for individual rooms. Say, Jesus' house belongs to you. My life belongs to you. But I don't want to let you in that room. Sometimes we can do that. We compartmentalize our lives and we say, Jesus, this compartment isn't for you. Remember what I said, wherever Jesus brings his presence, the glory of God comes. And if there's some place in your life right here, right now, even as I'm speaking it, your life is challenges. If there's some room in your life that you have, metaphorically speaking, you've locked Jesus out. Maybe you've even barricaded the door. You said, Jesus, not in this compartment of my life. Don't you see that Jesus is speaking to you right now? And he says, if you'll let me in there, I will bring my glory. You do not have to be afraid of it. Wherever Jesus walks and brings his presence, he brings the glory of God. We don't need to hesitate to bring everything in our life to him and open up every door of our life for him. Let's pray that we would do exactly that.